Either Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and we have one goal when it comes to The Switzer Show and that is to make you richer. And today we want to work out if the stock market sell-off, which we're seeing right now, is a correction or a crash. And joining me to battle this one out is my colleague Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Good afternoon, Peter. Yes, one of those uh, things, whenever we see a dip in the stock market, all the... uh well, it sounds like there's so much pent-up media and the to talk about the crash and the billions um, wiped. Wiped off. Wiped, we wipe billions off the market every day. Yeah. It's never wiped on. It's always no. wiped off. Um, and, but that's the obvious question, Peter. Of course, we had a big move in Wall Street, an even bigger move in Australia because for some reason when Wall Street sort of catches a – or sort of sneezes, we go the whole hog here. So we're actually done worse than Wall Street. Yep. But um, – I think it comes down to that question. Is this the correction we needed to have or is it the start of something bigger? Okay, well, to help us answer the question, because I know both you and I have our view, we have Julia Lee, the Empress of Equities. How are you, Julia Lee? (laughs) (laughs) Great, Pete. How are you doing? Oh, great, Julia. And Julia, of course, is from Bell Direct. And I had to get, get her a name because I've always got Margaret Lomas as the Princess of Property. I was going to ask how she felt about being called the Empress of Equities. I feel the pressure and I feel so powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think you'd have too, diff- too much difficulty with it, Julia. All right. And later in the show, we're going to look at the, the lessons that the money lessons that all young people should be taught. Paul wrote a story last week. He's four lessons for young people. What did you call the story, Paul? I headlined the story as four lessons that adults should read so they can teach their kids. Because yeah, I know course. writing for kids, they won't read it. Yes, right. I think the sub-editor might have changed it. <laughs> yes. And then I did, I did one today as well, the sub-editor changed it. And I came up with 11 lessons that all young people should have. I think they call it the young, the desperate and the cashless or something like that. But we're going to talk about that later. But the, the big story, of course, is... Where is this stock market going? Are we heading to Crashville, Tennessee, or is it going to be a nice correction and we bounce out of it? Julia Lee, let's give your best take on what you think is happening right now. Pete, the reason why uh, people are asking this question is October is once again proving to be a difficult month for investors. And we have history in the market with the month of October. The 1987 stock market crash was in October. The Asian currency crisis started around about October 1997. So people in the market tend to get a little bit scared when it comes to October. The Australian market had been on track for the worst monthly performance in exactly a decade since October 2008, where the market lost 12.6%. But luckily, just recently, we have seen the market coming back with a bit of strength. So we are on track now for the worst monthly performance since August 2015. But certainly with the US indices, they are on track for the worst performance that we've seen in exactly 10 years. So I guess the big question for investors is whether this is the start of a larger downward movement or whether this is simply a healthy correction. And when you think about it, Julia, the, the real big leg down for the GFC, um, well, the first leg down was what, November 1, November 2, just out of October. So there is a history of scariness around now. Now, before we start grilling you, what is your take on it? Do you think this is a correction that will prove to be a buying opportunity? At this stage, I think it's a correction. And the reason I think that is that when you have massive crashes, all things fall. And at the moment, if you look at the month of October and have a look at the best performing stocks in the ASX 200, they're the gold miners. For the month of October, we've seen Saracen up by 33%, St. Barbara Mines up by 22%, and Regis up by 19%. 
And during the worst of the global financial crisis, you still saw those gold stocks hit where they were, were hit either by margining or capitulation or people just selling off all of their portfolio. But at the moment, you're seeing rational moves towards some of those safer haven areas and it's not just indiscriminate selling through the market. So look, I think this is a correction at this stage. The risk is that we are quite late stage and the market does tend to get nervous that we see, um, I guess, the cycle turning. And what I mean by that is from an economic sense, when you're moving to uh, rising growth, so global growth rates and the economic cycle and rising inflation, to something that's not as conducive to equities, and that is uh, rising inflation but slowing growth. And from an earnings level, I guess in terms of the U.S., we have seen fantastic earnings. In fact, six out of the last seven quarters, we've seen double-digit earnings. This earnings season that's happening at the moment for U.S. stocks, it's predicted that earnings per share growth is going to be around about 20%. The problem is that those growth rates probably aren't going to last forever. And if you have a look at the longer term growth rates of what you can expect over the next 10 years, they're probably nothing like 20%. So the question is, you know, what should you be paying for the growth over the next 10 years? The last seven quarters have been absolutely phenomenal, but is that sustainable and what's to be expected going forward? Mm. Now, we're in the middle of... Uh, U.S. quarterly earnings season at the moment. And so far, Julia, I think you'll agree with me, the reports have been okay in terms of the last quarter's earnings. What the market seems to have been a little bit concerned about are some of the outlooks and, and next quarter. So is that sort of one of the key drivers behind the, the nerves we've seen in October? Absolutely. I think most things in life are cyclical and the market definitely is cyclical. You have good times and bad times and the good time is where you are seeing rising rates of growth and the more difficult times on the market is when you're seeing slowing rates of growth. And look, when you come to sort of the bubble stage or the high irrational valuations, this often happens because longer term investors look longer term and they move to defensive assets earlier on. So they move to either cash, fixed interest, or some of those defensive sectors that perform well in bad or good economic times like utilities, consumer staples, property, which has a high yield. Whereas the shorter term investors, um, they simply put more money in as the share prices keep on going up. So stock prices can become self-reinforcing until they hit a point that the stock market keeps on going up until there's more power, until there's a lack of power. And of course, the longer term investors have probably already moved to defensives backed on valuations. So at the moment, what I see is this fight between short-term and long-term investors and short-term and long-term returns. And certainly in the short-term, the returns are still looking pretty healthy. The big question mark is what are returns going to be looking like over the next three to five years? Yeah, look, I read something absolutely brilliant today, Julia, which makes me feel that this is a correction. I'm the one who actually wrote this brilliant stuff, by the way. Um, And you could laugh, Julia, but I guess you've heard me say that before. Um, In the history of the S&P 500 index, there's only been um, a situation where the market is, da- is uh, where the US economy is expanding and the market is down for the year. Only 4% of the time has that actually happened. And something like 63% of the time, the S&P 500 will be up 10% when the US is, is expanding like it is now. And Ed Giardini, who used to be, I think, chief economist at Deutsche Bank, he's looking at the PEs now for the US market going forward. He said at 15, with an expanding economy and interest rates so low, he just cannot believe that we're in crash territory. It's more like correction territory. What do you say to that? Well, I've paid... a lot more attention as soon as you said you said that. So um, having a, a look, and I think you're absolutely right. In terms of timing, the market's a little bit strange in that um, it tends to be forward-looking. So sometimes you see these corrections start to happen even before there's a... Um, I guess a downturn in terms of the economy and then if a recession comes through then usually buy during the recession because the market starts to point up during that. But if you're looking for um, I guess 
macro factors, what we call macro factors or slowing growth or people being scared of uh, the US trade um, with China having an impact in terms of global growth, those type of factors as a market timing tool. Unfortunately, these type of tools tend to be relatively blunt. And there's this fascinating theory called grounding where people tend to ground information to recent information and they did this great um, experiment where they had this wheel and it was numbered 0 to 99 and they got people to spin that wheel and then they asked them to predict the number of uh, African nations in uh, the United Nations and what they found was the higher the number you spun, the higher your prediction was and that makes absolutely no sense at all but I guess my point in that is if you ask people about what was the most traumatic thing in terms of, or uh, the biggest thing in terms of the financial markets over the last 15 years, most would have would say the global financial crisis. They still have the global financial crisis in their mind. Mm. And look, last year the MSCI index actually returned 20%. That's absolutely phenomenal. Well, when I tell people that, they get nervous. They say, well, are we going to have a crash this mm. year? But in actual case, if you go back into history, and I crunched the numbers from about 1970, and any year where we've seen a double-digit return for the global stock market, that's usually been a positive signal rather than a negative one. In fact, in most cases, it's been followed up by another positive performance by the global share market. And in fact, sometimes we see a string of double-digit performances. For example, from 1995 to 1999, Every single year, the MSCI, the Global Index, returned double-digit gains. Mm. And not only that, in the 1980s, from 1985 to 1989, every single year was a double-digit gain year for share investors over the globe. I guess we just become a little bit nervous because we have been through a lot over the last 15 years. Yeah, and I guess... It, I always feel a little bit more comfortable when I see the likes of Goldman Sachs and also um, um, the Economist Intelligence Unit both saying that if they were forced to pick a year where they expect a recession, they're both going for 2020, which makes me feel as though if there's going to be nervousness, it's probably going to be something for 2019 ahead of 2020 rather than what is going on now. Most people are predicting that if there is a recession, then you're right, Pete, that we'll see it in around about 18 months' time or even greater than that. But look, it's very hard to time the market. So I guess the point here is that risks are building. We know that that perhaps global growth is getting a bit long in the tooth, that the US stock market is getting long in the tooth. But we know that it's very difficult to predict when the cycle is going to t turn. So how do we manage this type of risk? Well, we do it through diversification, not only of different asset classes, so not only do you hold shares, but you hold some fixed interest, cash and property, but we also do it through different markets, so not only the Australian market, but perhaps the Chinese market, which hasn't been doing so well, so it might be time to look at that for the next 10 years, as well as more developed nations like the US market, and then perhaps duration as well, or timing. So we have a look at holding some longer-term investments, some medium-term investments, and a bit of those shorter-term investments as well, because sometimes the greatest returns are at that bubble end of the market, and that's where the most risk is, but where some of the quickest returns can be as well. I'll throw this to Paul as well because he was your employer many years ago when you were... He was my boss. Your boss, that's right. And, Twice. And Paul, of course, was a part of the the new age in stock markets with Comsec and you know online trading and all that sort of stuff. And there are people like Anton Taliaferro who, who says that what we're operating in nowadays is a far more reactive stock market situation because of the, the digital um, era of you know, computerized trading, exchange traded funds, where you know, all of a sudden a stock gets you know, written off because of a, a bad report, but the reaction seems bigger than in the old days. Now, Paul, you're the oldest person here when it comes to the stock market. Um, so do you think that there is an, a much more excessive reaction to bad news and even good news because of the, the digital era? Look, I think anecdotally, yes, Peter. I don't have the data to prove, prove that, but certainly that would be uh, 
an impression I've got from looking at how quickly the market reacts to news, how far it takes it on the news. Mm. And again, it's pretty quick to forgive uh, once you get through that cycle. And, and I so, guess when you first started, people had to be, A, watching the market all the time. They would ring up. And, and, and a lot of people just probably didn't even know the market was down because the media didn't even cover it as well as they do nowadays. Well, that's right, Peter. And in a, just to give a more recent example, uh, you could look at the market's performance today on a Monday and say, why did the Australian market go up straight from the opening bill this morning? Mm. Well, and that came after a big fall on Wall Street on Friday night of about 300 points. Yeah. One of the reasons was that was all priced into the Australian market on Friday because mm. we'd seen, you know, the, some of the US companies report the night before. We'd seen US futures down in sort of after hours trading and people were expecting the US market to fall and it didn't fall, wasn't as bad as expected. So that's one of the reasons our market mm. went up. But coming back to, I think, how markets react to specific company news incredibly quickly if you've got bad news you're going to lose 20 30 40 percent there's not much you can do about it and uh you just have to learn with that and i think that's sometimes these things happen on such thin volume so uh i think as you said peter in the good old days you didn't know what was going on in the market unless your broker uh, phoned you or you read about it in the paper the following day. So <laughs> you didn't have a chance to react to this type of stuff. And, and one classic example today was Kogan, Julia. It's down 28%. That is an absolute huge fall. And look, I think it comes from the timing aspect of it. I think in terms of professional fund managers and active fund managers, there's a much more stronger emphasis on short-term performance. And that's where I think retail investors can have an edge by taking a longer-term view. And I think it comes down to timeframes and how long you're in the market for. And if you understand that you're in the market for the medium to long term, I think these shorter-term movements um, present incredible opportunities. Of course, the fear with downgrades, like we've seen from Kogan, is that they're not going to be the last one, and often downgrades come in three. So I guess just watching to see whether this is a once-off or whether this is the start of a new cycle and a new trend, and that's the key for investors. Is this a once-off and hence an overreaction for markets, or is this the start of a new cycle? And unfortunately, Kogan at the moment comes in the retail space where we have had a number of profit warnings over the last two weeks. I mean, Michael Hill Jeweler came out to say that the September quarter same-store sales was down by 11%. We had a profit downgrade by the reject shop. Super Retail said sales were... Uh, slowing, including their auto division, and we also saw a profit downgrade um, from Flight Center. So that's an area I'm keeping a close eye on, Pete, because I know that the housing space in Australia is pretty tough, and the wealth effect. People, you know, feel confident when their house prices are going up and feel confident in spending money, but we're facing a Christmas where house prices have been down every single month for the last 12 months. So I wonder what that consumer discretionary space is going to be like this uh, pretty crucial Christmas trading season. If we could stop news, um, consumers reading newspapers, we could have a very good Christmas, I reckon. <laughs> but newspapers are scaring the pants off people all the time with house prices. Now, Julia, so before you go... We are, we're going to put you on the spot for the sake of our listeners. Do you think that we are, if you're forced to make a judgment either way, do you think we're in a correction and this will prove to be a buying opportunity or not? I think in the short term that this is a correction. However, I do think we are going to have a turning of the cycle next year. So the risks are building. And my preference from around about two months ago has been to move 5% of my portfolio into more defensive type of strategies. And I'm looking to do that over the next 12 months. I don't want any sudden performances. I don't want to move on emotion. But I know that the markets are cyclical. And I prefer to manage that cycle and manage that risk up front than reacting to the volatility that we're seeing in markets at yeah, the moment. But, but, you know, with my usual optimism, if you've got 5% defensive, you're 95% attack. <laughs> I'm 15% defensive at the moment, but okay. that's continually moving through. But, um, but, you know, I love the markets, and most years they are positive years. So if you look at just the probability of markets, yeah. Much more probable that you're going to make money than lose money as long as you keep your cool when the markets get tough. Julia, thanks for joining us on The Switzer Show. 
Always a pleasure, Pete. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Julia. That was Julia Lee, of course, who we call the Empress of Equities at Bell Direct. But what is her real title, Paul? Do you know? I think she is the uh, senior <laughs> research director or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm giving a good title. Let's call it the smartest woman in the room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just want to pick up on one of the points that Julia raised yeah. and what you were saying about retail investors and how the market has changed. I, I think one of the key realisations you as an investor you need to make now is you won't sell at the top and you won't yeah. buy at the bottom. And even within a day, I mean, you put an order on now, the price can just move 10, 15 cents in seconds. Hmm. You know, I mean, even with all the time, the sophistication of our of the trading systems that people like Bell Direct and Comsec uh, offer, the price can just get blown away totally in seconds. So hmm. I think you've got to have a bit of a deep breath. You want to sell something, sell it. Don't expect it to be the best price of the day because no. the chances are it won't be. Yeah. Don't expect it to be the best price of the week because the chances it won't be. And, and the same when it comes to buying. You, yeah. There is the volatility that the machines are creating is intraday. It's just phenomenal. Mm. And you've just got to do what you want to do, go away and say, I bought yeah. it or I sold it, and not worry too much about what actual price you got. And get used to the fact that you're to- not Gordon Gecker. That's right. And you can't be. The machines won't allow you to be. No, that's right. Okay, so that was Julia Lee. We're going to an ad break now. And after our break, Paul and I are going to look at all the lessons that parents should be teaching young people and young people should be dying to absorb. Coming up after the break. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzer. And always remember... That when we say 3.89%, that's our headline rate, and our comparison rate is exactly the same because there are no fees or charges to differentiate the rates. So um, if you haven't, if you if you should check out what your home loan is, and it's less than or more than us, come to us. If it's less than us, stay where you are. Okay, Paul, let's talk about. Four money lessons your kids should know. Now, you wrote this on Thursday, and I think, you know, um, this is a really good story, and uh, you promised to come up with some stuff that would really be beneficial, and you've looked at four major headings, and I've got them here. I wrote them down. One is under the heading of spending, the second one, saving, third one, investing, and the fourth one, I'm intrigued, cancel. Okay, so let's kick off with your tip for young people that all parents should be sharing with their kids, no matter what their age, uh, is spending. On the spending front, Peter, um, I made two observations. First of all, afterpay is is okay. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what afterpay is, then you haven't been talking to your kids because it's the fastest growing form of payment. It's essentially electronic lay-by. And you get the stuff... Up front, you, you have get, to wait, you like we stu- used to. You get the stuff up front and mm. your kids or young adults will pay for things over four equal installments over the next one installment per fortnight. So you yeah. get if you buy something that costs $100, they'll pay four installments of $25 every two weeks. Now, it's great as long as they've got the money and the discipline to make sure they can make the payment on time. Yep. So. Look, most people do it, but not all do. And then if you don't do it, you pay a late fee. So not a bad way. Obviously, the trap with Afterpay and the the reason that retailers love it is kids are spending a lot more because of the fact that we can just get on Afterpay. Mm, (laughs) It's buy now, pay later. You know, sounds pretty good. So Mm. the first point was, look, be aware that these payment methods are changing. Afterpay is okay for most people, but if your kids or your young adults or your siblings don't have the discipline, then go away. Mm. The second point I made was in terms of look, getting a credit card is also a good idea. It's good for a young adult to establish um, 
a uh, credit payment, a history file, but again, get the simplest, lowest cost, lowest interest rate card. Absolutely forget reward points and any mm. other type of loyalty scheme. Therefore, old rich people like you and me, Peter, yeah. who always pay our credit back on time. And we get the points. And we get the points. They aren't for other people. Yeah. So, uh, look, try to get the payment method that's going to cost them least and uh, they're going to have the most discipline about That and, was point number one. And the variety of interest rates from the lowest to the highest is quite extraordinary. I think the last time I looked at the lowest credit card rate I saw was around 9.9, 10. Did you, did you find Yeah, no, it is still around about 10%, but most cards are up in the 20s. Yeah. So they don't need that. And for goodness sake, they don't need to pay a huge fee. Most of these cards now are zero fee. Mm. They don't need loyalty points. I mean, just so that everyone understands what a loyalty point is worth, one point, and they're pretty well the same across all schemes, is worth half a cent. So if you spend a dollar, you earn half a cent. You spend ten dollars, you earn five cents. You spend a hundred dollars, you earn fifty cents. You spend a thousand dollars, you earn five dollars. Ten thousand dollars to earn fifty dollars, and a hundred thousand dollars to earn five hundred dollars. Not worth it. Okay. Yeah. I I love points because I always pay my credit card back on time. You mm. love a goody goody. No. I'm a bad cusp for the banks because I get the points. They make money out of people who don't pay their credit cards back on time. Okay, let's okay. go to the second one. So forget one. loyalty, Sims. Yeah, forget right. loyalty. Second one, saving. Okay, absolute no-brainer for young Australians these days is the government's new first homeowner, the first home super saver scheme. Yep, that's it. Okay, this came in, it was introduced about a year and a half. It's an absolute no-brainer for, for young people because they'll save about 30% faster than they would if they were saving, say, for a deposit through a term deposit or putting money in the bank. Yeah. Okay? Then you can go to the website. You can you can look at all the, the, the details. The reason it works that way is effectively that they're allowed to use super for effectively like salary sacrifice. So mm. it comes out of pre-tax dollars. Yep. It's a way of saving. So it's a lower tax. It's a lower tax. And then they're allowed to – the maximum they can do is 15000 in any one year yep. and then 30000 over the period of the scheme. Yep. And then they can – when they get to take it out, they can use it as a deposit to buy property. I guess if they had a couple, if they were a couple, it would be sixty grand, which would be a reasonable starting point for deposits – for look, probably a one-bedroom apartment in a yeah, not-too-expensive area. That's look, about the best they do. It's, it's, it's not the panacea, Peter, no. but it, if, if I said it, you, when you're thinking about you got the, the deposit gap for most people looking to buy their homes is going to be at least 20%. So if a house is worth half a million dollars, mm. they're going to have to find at least $100,000 as a deposit. Yeah. Under this scheme, they'll save 30% faster. Yeah. And so if, if you had a choice of saying, okay, well, look, I'm a, I'm a – 25-year-old, I'm working, I'll go and put some money at the bank after every pay and let the money just build up in a deposit or term yeah. deposit, or I effectively make a contribution out of my pre-tax salary into this super scheme. Yeah, my paymaster puts it in. Yeah, paymaster puts it in, I'll, be thir- I'll save 30% faster. Yeah. So if your kids don't know about this, and I reckon that about 80% of young Australians <laughs> don't wouldn't. know about it, they should learn about it. The first home super saver scheme, it's a government scheme. You go to the website. The super funds are slowly getting on board to mm. uh, make that work. Okay, the third area was investing. So mm. what's the, the main point there? Okay, so once you've done down the saving path and you've mm. already either got your home, uh, then look, let's think about investing. And I think this basically for young people, two choices, uh, homes or sh- investment property or shares. Yep. Shares are a much more divisible and easier, lower-cost thing to save into because mm. you can start for as little as, as effectively as $500. Mm. So getting a share portfolio is a really great idea uh, so for too. young Australians. And you can buy, go to places like uh, Commerce. You can get things like starter packs very yep. cheaply. Yep, Trade's another one as Nab well. Trade, or you can go go to funds like Switz mm. uh, or ETFs and other ways to get started in the share market. Yep. That's great. Investment property is still a good way to invest. Um, negative gearing is still there, despite the fact that the, the ALP is going to stop it, but they, it's going to be grandfathered. So mm. if, if you've got a, you know, if it's a young adult, well down, probably already bought their first home or well down the path to saving for that, want to invest, going to take a 10-year te- view, good at buying property, 
negative gearing, yeah. get the tax advantages is still pretty attractive ways yeah. to Even invest. though the Labor Party's view on negative gearing could slow up house price rises because mm-hmm. there'll be less investors chasing existing properties, it still doesn't mean that property won't be a, a pretty good form of investment and it will be sellable to other people other than investors, and investors still could buy it. But the thing is, it's a nice way to gain um, value, and you can borrow a lot more for property, Paul, than you can for shares. That's right. I mean, pick up the uh, the Young Rich list that was published in the AFR last week mm-hmm. or the AFR's rich list of all the big Were you on it, Paul, the Young, young Rich list? Uh, I, well, I didn't qualify. Missed out on age. Missed out on age, Peter. <laughs> But look, even pick up, for example, the um, the annual list of all our billionaires, yeah. and look how many have made their money through property. Yeah. Okay. Well, and Tim Gurn is one of the, the Tim Gurn number six hundred and twenty-four yep. mil. Yep. Tim and mate, we interviewed yep. him on this program. Yeah, and the young rich list. So yeah. look, property it's in cycles. We're in a down cycle, but that doesn't mean that you can't still buy good investment properties. Mm. And if you've got the cash flow, uh, and certainly the career, and there are people in their late 20s and early 30s, great jobs, great prospects. You know, I think investment property is a natural place to look at. Yeah, without a doubt. Now, the fourth one, cancel. Okay, so these are the two things um, I suggest your kids aren't doing. First of all, and I'm going to be contradicting myself here, by all means, use the first home super saver scheme mm-hmm. to get the money into super. However... Salary sacrifice and putting extra money into super, I reckon, for a young person is a dumb strategy. Yep. Okay? Because That's when you're not – it's when you're doing it not for a property but just for building up your super. Just for building up your super. Look, and the reason is, is pretty straightforward. If you're putting it in your 20s now, you won't be able to access it or they won't be able to access it for at least 30, 35, possibly 40 years. Yeah. Right? Currently, the access age for anyone – you know, under 30 is 60. Chances are over the next 30 years that'll increase because the population's going to age. Mm. So you put if they're putting extra money into super now, they will be locked away for 30, 35 plus years. Mm. I reckon they can invest better outside super in the meantime. So by all means, your employer's 9.5% and the money going in for the first home super saver scheme but don't put any more in. Don't get. Don't listen to super funds. Aren't going to tell you this. All they're interested in is growing the super assets. Mm. Super's not the smartest asset if you're someone under thirty, right? Okay. So you said cancel. What are we cancelling? Well, if you're doing salary sacrifice, cancel that. Just stop it. You, what about what about insurance? Okay, that was the second point. Yeah, you always you always uh, rapping on about I, that. I wrap it on about insurance uh, unless they've got dependents, and dependents mm. could be you know kids, yep. or they've got a mortgage. They probably don't need insurance. So if, between the ages of, say, probably 20 and probably 30, when younger people haven't got any dependence or responsibilities, you think it undermines the growth of super because the money's coming out and it stops your super getting bigger faster. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big cost, Peter, and I think that you've got to be realistic. Are you likely to claim it? And if you, something did happen to you, what? Well, would, it, would anyone as a result be worse off? So mm. if you've got dependents and you've got kids and you're caring for somebody yep. you know, or you've got a mortgage to repay and the worst happens to you, well, someone's going to have to pick it up. And so you don't unless you leave that to someone behind you. But if you don't have, aren't in that situation mm. and the worst happens, well, you know, it's not the end of the world. No. So I think, you know, different story. We've got dependents, mortgages, debt, whatever it is, young age, I reckon you can do better. Okay, so that's Paul's four big tips for young people. If you want to read about it, just go to switzer.com.au, go to the experts section, you'll see Paul Rickard and that story comes up straight away. After the break, Paul's going to ask me about my 11 lessons for young people on how they can make themselves rich going forward. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. 
Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are me teeth? Yeah, I remember that now, Paul. Where is my teeth? I got caught out so many times until I realised that old guy always wants to know where his teeth are. Now, this morning I wrote a piece, which will be on switzer.com.au, and it's about the 11 lessons I think young people need to know to try and you know, to make them richer and more successful. And so Paul's going to walk us through and, and, uh, and prompt me to see why I've written various things in this Wonderful piece this morning. And by the way, why did I write it? If, if you're going well, to ask. yeah, <laughs> well, Peter, that's a really good question. Well, what right? I do every morning, I get up and go through all the newspapers and I look for stories that I think are ridiculous or stupid or misleading or need to be clarified. And I could, really couldn't get one this morning. So I thought, why don't I just come up with something you know, brand new and valuable for people? And look, judging from Twitter, people liked it. Well, you wrote a great story in the weekend, Peter, about uh, Harry and Meghan yeah. and about their positivity. And living the dream. And living the dream. And I, I thought that was maybe it was, you'd work up. A follow-on. Follow-on, yeah. yeah. But it's funny, I, I never thought you read my weekend switch. So I thought, ah, it, was, I thought it was too positive and optimistic <laughs> for you. you know? it's glad, I'm glad to know you're reading that one. I, I really enjoyed it. That's and Sean Anker. He's so funny. Yeah, and I meant to say something you know, really supportive this morning when I saw you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. You know what? I actually started doing those five steps to build your yeah. happiness, I, and it actually does work. Okay, so let's right. crank Go back into this uh, how yeah. we can help our younger Australians. The lessons they learn should learn about if they really want to get rich. Let's start with the basics, your bank account. What was your point there, Peter? Well, the point is, you know, we, there was a survey out this morning saying that uh, the Deloitte one saying that, uh, you know, banks have, you know, really, you know, they've lost a lot of supporters. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, the Deloitte survey is at, is at odds with the Roy Morgan survey, which has been going on for a long time. And the last one they did was in September. And 78% of um, bank customers still think their bank's all right. And I think the reason for that is that most people love the bank when the bank says yes to them, when they want to get a home loan, that, that dream home loan. I think it's the people who have really been persecuted by banks that may well be, you know, 10% of the customers have had a bad time. They're the ones that really hate the banks. But my point is, because your relationship with your bank is so important, you need to select one that suits mm -hmm. you. And I know when we were, I was teaching at university many years ago, the University Credit Union was charging no fees. And their interest rates were higher than, than the other ones on deposits. And their home loans were really competitive. And so I selected them. And they ended up becoming – we became their yep. first business yep. customer. And, and, and the bank manager would talk to us. So I used to love that. So that said, is there that much difference between you know, one of the major banks? No, or, I or don't think so. But various banks – do have different people running them. Mm -hmm. And I've, yeah, I think you need to... The bank managers still exist, don't they? They do exist. They do yeah. exist. And, they, and they've, be, they've become more like personal bankers. You know, they're not behind a, a counter. They're at an open desk. A bit like those American movies where you see people sitting you know, at a desk and it's like being in a hotel or something. But I think the thing is this, have a view on your bank. And if, if your view is they're overcharging you, then go to a mortgage broker and... Find yourself a cheaper home loan. Find yourself a cheaper credit card. Do not be loyal to a, a financial institution that's not loyal to you. Okay, let's take it up a level. Yeah. Planning. What's the... Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I started with the banks because I think that is a, a really you know, to the core lesson. I think on a higher level, you're right. Everyone should have a plan. And that plan should be, what do I want out of my life? Um, so you're not talking about a 20-page document here. No. You're actually talking about a... Do it on one page. A one-pager, right? Yeah. Like the, the plan might be I want to live in Middle Park, Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I want to be um, CEO of my accounting practice. I'm an employee. You write this stuff down. Just like if you're an athlete and you wanted to write down, I want to win Australian swimming championships, and then two, three or four years later go to the Olympic Games wherever it might be. People who want to achieve something need to put down a plan. And when you do that, you're able to objectively assess how you're going. 
Okay. Right. And, 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 it's, and it's something you can refer back to, right? Exactly right. And improve. A plan, a business plan doesn't remain the no. first one you write because you learn so much about business while you're doing business. And the same thing happens to like a, an, athlete, an athlete's plan. They start at a certain level. They get a great coach. They diet better than ever before. They work out better than ever before. And all of a sudden, they're running faster. They're swimming faster. They're winning events. And all of a sudden, their plans change. Okay, so it's not a static document. It's no. going to change. It's going to need review. Exactly right. And you've got to see, how, be honest about it. how you're going. Okay, we we're talking. We talked about banks. We talked about planning at the top yeah. level. What about the super fund? Because that's still everyone. If you're employed, they've got a compulsory nine and a half percent. Yeah, and th- and this is a, would be a part of your plan too, because the money you you generate in the future. Yeah, if you if you say, for example, do a, you know, a really good promotion, or you start a business that's really successful. You then would want to try and put your money either into property and or superannuation because both are, are good ways of, of, uh, of building your wealth. But I would say go to websites like superratings.com.au mm-hmm. or Chant West and they'll show you the best 10 funds over the last three, seven and 10 years. And A, make sure your fund at least is in that top 10 list. And secondly, find out what your fund is charging you. And if it's more than 1%, You've got to switch, and because if you go for thirty-five years on a poor performing fund, paying too high a fees, you could lose hundreds of thousands of dollars over thirty-five years. I was listening to a report on the ABC the other day, which followed uh, an extensive survey about the cost of super. Yeah. They still said that the weighted average charge in super was over one and a half percent. I believe that. I, I couldn't believe that. No. So, so people are just not checking out yeah. what they're being charged. Like that's the simple rule. If you're paying more than one percent, you got rocks in your head. Because most industry funds are charging about 0.8, yeah, 0.8 right. to 0.9. It's like so and, if you pay one. But remember, we we had a colleague at Two GB, yep. and she was good with a financial institution, yep, that's true. and she had a really expensive fund, and the same institution, which I think was advertising on our program, yep. was under one <laughs> percent. So like, but she hadn't checked, and she didn't change. It was her fault. Okay, so speaking about fees yeah. and charges, let's talk mm. about spending and, yeah. and uh, how we manage our spending. Does that mean doing a budget? Yeah, definitely. And budgets are really boring, but I came up, with, boring, I, but I came up with a really interesting yeah. – could you read it? I can't even remember what – I wrote it this morning, but it was a really sexy way. A money makeover master plan? Yes, it. <laughs> the money makeover master plan. How good is that? And it's really a, just a budget. But I think the starting point is you find out what you're spending. Write it down. See how much money you're spending, where it's going. And then the next step and you, is, And you GST. Explain what yeah, you mean by yeah. that. And the next step is you then GST your spending. Put a 10% tax on yourself. One of the best books ever written, apart from the books I've written, Paul, is – the richest man in Babylon, and mm-hmm. one of the and this is like a really old money making, a wealth building book. And this richest guy in Babylon, many years ago, why he was so rich, he saved ten percent of every dollar he earned. There wouldn't have been dollars in those days; it would have been trunkets or blankets or whatever, or doubloons, whatever it was. He saved ten percent, and that was the core of why he became rich. And people are doing that today. Well, I think it goes so easy, Peter. You think about. Um how many takeaway coffees most of us get or yeah. uh, the smashed avocado, just those little things, you know, you can, right. it's it's not hard to, you know, you, know, you can't GST what you're paying on rent, no, right? But, but you, you can, can change. If you're, you can, if you're yeah. an expensive rental area, yeah. go to a slightly yeah. less. And, and why do you do it? Because you want to get rich, not because you're a tightwad. You want to get rich, and this is what I'm trying to do. There are things you can do to give you the money. So the budget and the GST taxing, gives you the money. The next thing is you have to invest that money. Okay, so I've got my saving under control. I've yep. GST'd that. I've got the right bank account. Yeah, yeah. Thought yep. about what's the of my super. Correct. You sound good, Paul. Yeah. And now I want to, I'm actually building up a little bit of cash flow yeah. and, I'm, and I'm ready to invest. So yep. well, what's the, let's assume I've got well, $5,000 to invest. Yeah. Well, what's so, the story there? So you, you, you then make a plan around how you're going to invest it. Now, some people might... If they say, for example, they, they they are doing this in their late forties and their kids are off their hand and their super balances aren't very big, that five thousand dollars could go into their super fund. 
that, that would be an age in which you, you'd do it. You probably own a house. Your super's probably pretty low because you spend it on kids and you've been paying off your house. That's a good time from post-budget, post-GST yourself to take that 5000 or 10000 a year and throw it into super. Other people, younger people might use the 5000 to build up the deposit to buy a home or to get an investment property. You have to try and find a, a strategy. And no, no one's going to come and say, hey, Paul, you're a nice young kid. Here's an investment plan. You've got to go looking for it and find out you know, what's out there. And things, as you pointed out in your stories, exchange-traded funds, I think, are, are the most easy way for anyone to play the stock market. You could buy something like IOZ. Vanguard's got one as well. What's the one called? VAS. VAS. Now, but most 25-year-olds will look at you and say, what the beep is an exchange-traded fund? <laughs> right. So you're going to have to spell that one out. Yeah, so the exchange-traded fund is just simply one stock, in inverted commas, where they put 200 stocks into it, the best 200 stocks in the country, mm-hmm. all go into one, and it might be a, it might be a price of a unit of, say, 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. And if you, buy, if you buy 1,000, you get yourself 50, right? And you got 50, and if it goes up by 10% over the year, that $1,000 of yours has gone to $100. And so basically, it's just a very simple way of playing the stock market. You've got 200 companies in there. You don't have to be an expert where you pick out the best company. And this, they also pay a, a dividend of around 4.5% each year. So it's a great way of starting in the stock market. Okay, number eight, you're talking about your own personal health and well-being and so forth. I mean... We've got the finance under control. There's a bit here to sort of make sure that you're ticking along nicely too, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think the thing is this. You, you need to have, I think, an overall plan for your health. And, and, and in a sense, it's like investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not just investing in health. It's investing in wealth. If you've got a, a small business, investing in getting a great accountant to give you some insights so you're actually performing. It's basically say, having a self-improvement goal. Okay, Next. so that, that relates to health, it relates to investing in yourself, it relates to hanging out with the right people. The right people, great, positive, and success oriented people. That would be like a P Switzer, I guess, right? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, look, I know a lot of people follow me on Twitter and they read my stuff each day. By the way, Jim Collins, who wrote one of the best business books of all time called Good to Great, he actually said he had, he had a board of directors yeah. directing him. And they were involuntary because he selected them by the books that he read. So he imagined that, for example, Brian Tracy, the, the guy who was great at sales, was his mentor and he got the mentoring advice from reading the book. Same he did with that. Who's that, that really great? Uh, Peter Drucker, the business thinker from, from you know, US academia. And so in a sense, he went looking for great influences. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to be successful in your employment and you want to be successful in the business you grow, and out of that you get good income to grow your wealth, to become rich and to look successful, hang out with winners, not losers. I think there's a lot of parents be thinking about their well, adult well, kids and saying, <laughs> hey, John or Janie or yeah. whatever your name is, so get rid yeah. of those. Find friends. a better group. <laughs> get yeah, out of the loser but, group you're in. Right? But in many ways, that's that's a job of parents to yeah. try and bring more people into the circle. You know, and I've got to say, I think there are some parents who who actually do bring friends of the family in, so they become you know accidental influences on purpose. Okay, and there's there's finally a last point though yeah. to, to tap it all off or cap it all off was. Find out how about your how you're going to boost your income. So we've talked a lot about saving, investing, getting great advice, but you still got to keep the income going, don't you? Oh, without a doubt. And in fact, I'm going to have to read that last point, Paul, because you, you, you've you've actually thrown me there by saying. So remember, I put my glasses on for this. But I know I certainly think desire is critically important in the last bit, and it says. Um, Write down how you boost your income, either from being the best employee, uh, and I also that's yeah. the point. That's the point. Did I did I not? No, no, it's okay. The the, the, the one thing I wanted to emphasize mm-hmm. was the SWOT analysis. Ah, the SWOT. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Do a SWOT on yourself, and when you do a SWOT on yourself, you look at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats, and you apply it to 
what you want to do with your employment and your progress from employee to CEO, the, the progress of a startup business to a Telstra a small business award winner. All those things, I think, are linked to a desire to be better. And I think, you know, what you do for your career, or what you do to build your business, it can be just as well paralleled with what you do to build up your wealth. And I think simultaneously, you become a better person, not necessarily morally a better person. That would be great. That happens too. But I think you actually start realizing that there's a link between what you put in, the input, and the output that you get. And I think one of the last thing I'd throw in is read books like Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson. Those sorts of books, I think, really do give you incentive to realize what high achievers do fanatically to become a success and build their wealth. So let me recap, Peter, and I'll throw back to you for a final uh, comment, but Mm. let's go through those 11 again. So work out what bank or building society is going to and basically become a partner with your bank or exactly business. Exactly right. I yeah. think is what you're saying. Secondly, create a plan to build wealth. Yep. Thirdly, make sure your super is in a good performing fund mm. and you aren't paying crazy fees. Yep. Put your spending under the microscope. Mm. GST the spending, you'll find a way to save 10%. Yep. Now you've got some money, decide how you're going to grow it yep. and work out a plan to do that. This is great, Paul. Yep. Keep going. Um, learn about the stock market and other easy investment products. Yep. Look after your stuff. So look. Yeah, we didn't actually yep. emphasize that. Yep. Was a lot of people, they don't look after their car. They don't look after their house. They don't look after their shoes. And so they're always buying new shoes. Like looking after your stuff is a great way to save money. Yeah. Okay. Uh, invest in yourself. Yep. Uh, hang out with great, positive, and success-oriented people. Correct. And then finally, do a SWOT. Understand your strengths, what the opportunities are, and how you're going to go about. And yeah. Do it. And there's one last thing I throw in, and I wrap it up, is that you, you have to want to do it. You have to like I write those eleven things down and rate yourself. Where are you in relation to this? Yeah. Good. Great. Poor, write it down, and then resolve to fix that up. Maybe check it every three months. How am I going? I was I was poor last time on saving. Now I'm good. Rate yourself. And there's a fantastic quote I love from Chris Evert, and she said, "There were times when deep down I wanted to win so badly I could actually will it to happen. I think most of my career was based on desire. If you desire to get wealthy in the future." You have to want to be committed to it, focused on, on it, and do all the things I recommend in those 11 steps. I reckon on that note, Peter, we're close to done for the week. We? I think so, yeah. The show has gone longer than normal, but I think it was really valuable yeah, information. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yours was good, and I was good too. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back, we'll back next time. Quentin time! Quentin time! <laughs>